0: Hello, everybody. Just a little caveat before we get started. Today's interview was recorded just a little bit before Christmas. It is about the force to vote controversy, and that is of course now just a little bit dated. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to put it out on time because, well, I'm old. I'm getting old, folks. My eyes rejected my contacts. I was stuck in some old pairs of glasses that I owned, and I was waiting on a new pair of glasses. I couldn't see my computer screen, and I'm old and decrepit. And it's uh, it's just a few, uh, I guess, a few short years away from prune juice and walking farts for me. But no, seriously, uh, I now have a new pair of glasses. I'm able to see my computer screen once again. I'm able to edit podcasts once again. So unfortunately, due to some migraine headaches, some vision problems, and temporary blindness, I was unable to get this podcast episode out in time to make it relevant to the actual debate. But have no fear, it's dated, but still highly, highly relevant The debates that underlie the force-to-vote controversy are not going away anytime soon. We are seeing, in particular, the media personalities that have staked out various positions on the force-to-vote debate uh, only double down their claims in the uh, past couple of days since the speaker vote happened this past Sunday. As you will know, Nancy Pelosi was voted once again uh, Speaker of the House, this past Sunday, just a couple of days ago, and the revolt that was much uh, hoped for and called for uh, by the likes of Jimmy Dore, Brianna Joy Gray, and others um, did not happen. It did not come to pass. Some people are now, of course, histrionically claiming from the mountaintops that this makes them traitors and frauds and all the rest of it. I'm going to have a lot more to say about that in the coming weeks. I think it's very disappointing if we are serious about developing a an inside outside strategy that um, you know certainly understands the limitations of the squad. I myself have been quite um, quite critical of many of the postures in particular, the kind of faux woke radicalism, this kind of intersectionalism that uh, you know really betrays any real meaningful universalist socialists. Position, you know, I mean, it's it comes from the universities, It comes from the humanities departments and grad school seminar rooms. It doesn't come from the real lived needs and realities of the multiracial working class. And of course, I've been I've been critical about that. Okay, look, people, I in large part helped to popularize. I didn't certainly didn't do it single handedly, but I very in large part helped to popularize anti essentialism on this new left. So you cannot. Don't you dare, okay, accuse me of being some kind of rad lib shill. However, we do need to be critical of our elected leaders, our elected officials, Uh, but we need to do so in a way that is cognizant of the demands placed upon us by the political terrain that we have inherited, that we need to get serious about winning power over the long term. My contention is that the left right now is at the end of the beginning. That is to say, we are just about ready to crawl out of the crib. We are no longer suckling on our mom's teat. <laughs> we are perhaps eating some soft carrots, some uh, some some mashed squash, if you will. No longer breast milk. <laughs> I may extend this ridiculous metaphor a little bit more, uh, but you get it. We are at the end of the beginning of this latest phase of the left, and some people are ready to burn it down already. Some people are ready to take their ball and go home already. Some people are crying from the mountaintop that this left is fraudulent and it's, you know, and and, and, and I'm not sure what they want to do instead. Uh, This is what's on the table. And my contention is that we need to take what's on the table and figure out how to be victorious in the medium to long term. And uh, that doesn't involve like cynical posturing online about burning it down and calling all of our leaders fraudulent. It means looking at the possibilities that lay in front of us. But anyway, I'm look. I'm I'm going to have a lot more to say about this. That's just to say that I'm still heated about this. <laughs> I think the uh, the debates and the controversies raised in the course of the forced to vote controversy are still highly, highly relevant. So please abide the somewhat dated way in which we talk about this, Eric Levins and I, and because uh, we really get to the heart of this. And whether you win, lose, or draw, whether we agree or disagree. This is relevant. I'm going to be having my first inaugural episode. That is redundant. First inaugural. Oh, well. Our first inaugural episode of Point Counterpoint, which is a new series I'm running on DPS to really foreground a kind of debate series. I bring guests on and we kind of have a hug fest for an hour. I want to bring guests on and debate with them. I want to argue. I want to disagree in a structured way. And so the first episode is going to appear as a B-side later this week, featuring our our dear friend, Nick Kiersey. He's going to argue in favor of force the vote. I'm going to to be arguing against force the vote. Uh, We really want to model some, you know, good old fashioned debate. The left needs to get used to talking to people with whom we may or may not disagree. We are able to kind of curate our media consumption in such a way that we never have to contend with things that we disagree with. And I think that's bad. So we're going to model that differently in order to get that. You're going to have to be a patron. If you want to support this project, I implore you to head over to www.patreon.com slash dead pundits and become a subscriber today. I recognize that the media scene on the left is bloated. It is oversaturated. And uh, I think a new podcast comes out every week. You know, There's a new podcast project that launches at least once or twice a week now. It's getting pretty ridiculous. It's almost like, hey, we should coordinate and be good socialists about this, but we haven't done it yet. Uh, so I recognize your attention is being pulled in a million different directions, but we here at DPS have been at this for going on four years and we plan to be here four years hence. So head over to patreon.com slash pundit and slash dead pundits plural, and support this project so we can keep going in the long haul. All right. Enjoy the episode. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother! Welcome everybody to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. Slugging it out post Christmas. Our bellies are full. We probably had a little too much to drink. Perhaps we missed our families a little bit, but we're still alive. We're here. We're thriving. We're going to talk about politics a little bit today. Joining me on the program is someone that you guys will be familiar with, someone you know and love or you love to hate, whichever be the case. I don't know how you could hate this man. He's such a sweet, sweet boy. Eric Levitz, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for
0: having me. Yeah, Eric is a staff writer at the New York Magazine's Daily Intelligencer blog. He's a guy that I lean on heavily to kind of give me a dose of progressive reality. This is again in a, a sort of a self-avowed democratic socialist platform. But I've been hosting quite a number of kind of more kind of a progressive left journalists, people who probably spend a little bit less time reading Marx than I do, but at the same time are fluent. In, in the discourse all the same, and um, this particular topic that we're going to be talking about today, we're going to dig into this in just a moment, is something that is as heated as ever, and and oddly enough, it actually doesn't really fall down on the same kind of expected lines that you may think, right? This isn't like a Bernie V. Warren argument. This isn't a, you know, a, a died in the wool, democratic, socialist, Marxist versus a, a progressive uh, argument. Uh, this is something that tr- has managed to transcend all ideological and, and seeming strategic kind of backdrops. And that is whether or not uh, progressives ought to force a vote on Medicare for all on the House floor. Um, As a bargaining chip for pitching in a vote coming from the squad and the progressive elements of the CBC uh, in favor of uh, Nancy Pelosi's speakership for the coming two years. Some of you will have read far too much about this on Twitter. Some of you will not, but we will foreground this, and I promise we're going to transcend the Twitter debates and talk more generally and broadly about the political forces and play and talk about the kind of arguments and the tactical and strategic positions. We're going to talk about our strengths. We're we're going to talk about our weaknesses, and we're going to talk about what's kind of going on behind the the scenes. But we can't do that without really talking about the discourse, capital D discourse, and unfortunately for all of us, and unfortunately for humanity, Much of that does take place on Twitter, so bear with us. We're going to try to uh, treat this as fairly and as well-roundedly as we can. Uh, That being said, both myself and my guest today do have a perspective. And I'm going to be pretty uh, una- pretty, pretty, pretty obvious about that one. Uh, but your piece, Eric, that appeared on the da- Daily Intelligencer blog a couple of days ago. Uh, that we're recording this right before Christmas, so uh, this will still be relevant, I think. It's called The Left's Most Naive Cynics Have Turned on AOC, where you outline the online outrage that has spawned up against AOC. Talk to us about your impulse for writing the piece. This is a piece that I was a little surprised that you wrote, but I'm glad that you did tell us about why you felt like this was so important.
1: Yeah, no, it's, um, it's a, it's a good question. It's not an easy question to answer as far as, you know, there is one part of even myself that's like, you know, who cares what Jimmy Door and a bunch of YouTubers are, uh, you know, I mean, if, if they have an opinion about how to do strategy, that's, that's, that's fine. And, um, but it uh, has no traction that we can see with Members of Congress, um, it's getting a lot of attention online. But you know, is this something that's really worth you know interrogating, or you know, is it in participating in this discussion, am I kind of perpetuating a kind of useless interleft argument that's just making people mad at each other um, and not really whatever? At the right, same- which is the
0: same fear I share at this <laughs> point in time. Having an episode about it in the first place, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we're we're, we're together. Then, yeah. Maybe, can you share that. at
1: the same time, like having published the piece. And like frankly like uh so I don't know I mean, maybe this this maybe reflects part of the problem is that these kinds of interleft uh fights over stuff that like ultimately is not that that salient to what's gonna happen in the world, I don't think um in the immediate term, it's gotten a ton of engagement, I've gotten great traffic uh, been able to you know help vox media sell some some solid like ads and monetize some content um right. and uh but but less cynically, that this is really something that that I think that that a lot of people care about for understandable reasons. I mean, we've had, you know, through Bernie's two campaigns, through AOC's primary, um, through this year's uh, left victories with Bowman and Cory Bush, and, you know, a real uh, strong sort of uh, call for, we can't wait any longer to have universal health care in the wealthiest nation on planet Earth. And that sentiment uh, has gained more force and authority and maybe a little bit of plausibility in the context of a world historic pandemic that has cost millions their employer provided health insurance. And so I sympathize, you know, with, with the instinct that says, okay, like, look, we're here, we have elected these, um, you know, socialist and social democratic representatives who campaigned specifically that, that the salient difference between them and the democratic incumbent that they were challenging is that they support and will fight for. Medicare for all, um, you know. So it's not. I understand where people are coming from. And they say, "Okay, you're there now. Let's fight for Medicare for all." And so I think it's worth explaining why. I mean, the, the number one problem that I had is it, not that this suggestion is, was being made, but that uh, Jimmy Dore and I felt to a certain extent, um, Kyle Kolinsky, and, and some of the other people online um, at, at partially at their uh, encouragement were are not simply saying that. Look, I think this is what we should do, but but. Saying uh, this proves that that Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is a careerist, uh, you know, corporate shill, or or she's selling out uh, the movement, Um, as though the the strategy that was being proposed for advancing Medicare for All, uh, you know, which is to force a floor vote on the issue by holding Nancy Pelosi's speakership ransom, that the the case for this was so obvious and overwhelming that only someone who was just fundamentally not committed. To the the normative project could possibly decline to pursue it, and you know I think the case is actually pretty weak is one thing, um, but then the fact that that this weak case is being used to make people disillusioned and cynical about some of the few representatives that have demonstrated any significant ideological commitment to uh, the cause of a, at least a social democratic America is uh, troubling to me, and so that I, I guess trying to to counter that sort of tendency, which I do think is encapsulated here, but it, but it is a broader thing and is kind of endemic to a certain corner of the left and not, uh, not a large, I mean, I, I don't know how to measure these things, but, but they're, they're a loud tiny portion. Uh,
0: they're, they're influential. I mean, yeah. we're talking about Jimmy Dora has a massive, uh, uh, lit viewership, listenership. Uh, Kyle Kalinske has a massive viewership, listenership, and they are spouting some really troubling, you know, frameworks, <laughs> tactical postures, um, just overarching kind of ideological positions to hold down. And, you know, and so what I want to talk about with you, I mean, going forward, you being a far more like a moderate, rational and charitable guy than I am. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm very well known, I'm well known, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, a little hot headed at times, uh, although in, in the grand scheme, I'm a pretty, a pretty gentle uh, kind of guy. But at the same time, you know, you are far more rational than I, and so I want to be very clear that what we're not doing, and I think that, you know, um, intelligent, rational actors could absolutely make an argument that forcing a floor vote on the House, in the House, at this point in time, is is a, is a smart tactical move, and it's something that we could do to move the ball forward. That's fine, and you know I think that um, we could agree to disagree on sort of certain tactics. What is undoubtedly bad <laughs> that has reared its head over the past week or so, since this has been really um, the hot button topic, are this is this kind of posture that, that this burn it down posture that Jimmy Dore, in particular, and his followers on Twitter and online have have picked up on, and and, and also to this highly moralistic symbolic posture that that Kyle Kolinsky of all people has picked up on and I think it's a these are symptoms of pol- uh, political defeat and uh, demoralization right and, and and defeat demoralization does not necessarily follow defeat we have been defeated in men, in some senses we've also succeeded in others but this kind of desperate uh, burn it all down if we don't get exactly what we want right now is remarkably dangerous and irresponsible, especially coming from people who have such large platforms. Uh, you do you quote Kyle Kalinske, who tweeted out on December 12th, if your politics comes from a place of principle, then all the strategy talk is pretty silly anyway. <laughs> now we can stop there. That's that's a difficult, that's a wrong-headed statement. Anyway, he said he goes on. If you believe in something, you fight for it and dot every i and cross every t if you lose okay but the act of doing everything in your power to achieve it is the definition of morality questionable assertion there as well in other words your meaning and your purpose is derived from the process of the fight to achieve that which is ethically correct if you're not doing that what are you doing what's the point of even being a politician careerism and self-aggrandizement it's so hollow I mean, it would take a a doctoral thesis to unpack the claims, philosophical claims and strategic and political claims and personal claims that are being made there. But, you know, in essence, we've just we're coming from a, 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 dare I say, just very histrionic and desperate and demoralized place in all of this Um, sort of claiming that we need to go down with the ship, claiming that uh, principles should always and in every case outweigh strategy talk. Um, this is not politics. This is um, I don't know. Uh, some what is it? Naval gazing at the at the morality s- salon. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it's troubling. Is it, you know, anyone who listens to DPS uh, with any seriousness should be troubled by a lot that that we have just sort of laid out. And so, whatever you think about the floor vote, right? Whatever you think tactically and however strongly you feel about those, I think that we should all agree. What I'm going to vociferously (laughs) argue over the next hour is that we should all agree that these things are, are very bad for a left that needs to get more serious about, uh, uh, taking power and then holding power and wielding it in, in successful and long lasting directions. Yeah. Um,
1: I I think that, um, one, many aspects of that, that, that quote that, um, or, or the, the kind of thinking that the quote represents, uh, that I find um, you know uh, problematic uh, is just that I don't think that um, that anyone so I, I think it's part of this phenomenon or, or, or I always think of the George Carlin bit about um, how you know when you're driving on the highway or whatever like anyone who goes faster than you is a is a maniac and anyone who goes slower <laughs> is an idiot um, right right yeah. and uh which is to say that that like everybody is even the people who are saying that they are like making no compromise to um uh you know alleged pragmatism uh when in in light of just the moral urgency of, of the things that they believe in like everyone is is made, i mean like you know medicare for all is a compromise from a actually socialized healthcare system right with with government providers um like the nhs Um, But even prioritizing Medicare for all over, uh, you know, like I sort of say in the piece, there's, I believe, like, I think it's 26 million um, official refugees uh, in the world right now. Uh, The United States, um, you know, uh, has has, has ample, uh, it could really rescue a lot of um, declining cities in the U.S. if if we allowed, just just took in en masse um, all of these people who, in, in the increase in overall human welfare, of bringing these people who are you know currently being warehoused in these terrible conditions uh, to the United States enormous right um, but but there's a recognition that political reality you're not going to at least bring everybody uh, over here you know similarly the 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 case for immediately sending trillions of dollars to developing countries to help them develop sustainably and and using green technologies and and, and doing technology transfers where instead of doing IP. Uh, having u s firms like protect this intellectual property around renewables and stuff like we need to be giving it away there's like a lot of stuff that that probably like utilitarian calculus like holy shit that's way more morally urgent even than Medicare for all, but we're not doing that because there is a sense that like you know ultimately uh, you know and a- a- as some of the advocates argue that Medicare for all is in the scheme of radical reforms a, a relatively popular one in, in a relatively politically imaginable one, at least relative to the things that I was just describing. But so we're all, whether we're like conscious of it or not, I think everybody in this conversation is making strategic calcu- calculations of some kind. It, so I, I think ultimately it is not a disagreement in principle about whether whether it is permissible to deprioritize morally urgent causes uh, to secure more limited but more probable gains I don't think that's something that actually, that, that Kalinsky actually disagrees with, with AOC about. Um, I think the disagreement is about how plausible the strategy, um, that, you know, a YouTube host, uh, kind of conjured out of thin air, uh, it is, um, I think that's right. the, yeah, the
0: disagreement. that's to say that we, we, I mean, this is something that I have to argue on the show to the left uh, all, all the time is that we, we do make priorities, People argue the similar thing and kind of more, you know, higher levels of abstraction that like, oh, making priorities is monstrous because you're insinuating that these other things that, you know, you didn't make a priority aren't aren't important. And this is something that have, that socialist left struggles greatly with when when it comes to making strategies uh, is that we you do have to prioritize based on you know the opportunity and the uh, strength of your forces and kind of what the chances are of this thing succeeding and sort of there's an order of operations problem too you know you, you really do need to kind of uh, get the order of things correct if you want to sort of uh, get the most out of you know the, the strategy in the, the long the medium to long term and these things are deemed from a moralistic standpoint. Uh, to be, and I don't want to say moralist, uh, moralistic. I do think there's a difference. I don't know if I'm inventing that or not. If it's a true philosophical difference, but moralism is the idea that moral. So this this idea of morality sort of trumps any other, um, you know, uh, more pragmatic consideration. To me, is it moral if you go down with the ship and nothing changes at the end of the day? Um, or is that, you know, I don't know. Uh, mental masturbation. Probably the latter in my calculus, in my assessment, anyway. Um, but that's to say that you know. Um, this moralism uh, gets in the way of any serious tactical or strategic debates or, or discussion that might get us, you know, actually further to the cause, further to the the outcome that that we deem to be the moral outcome. Um, and it's a, it's you know, it's it's just it is demoralizing for me to see this because I had thought that you know after after the squad after the Bernie moment and that kind of wave and. Social democratic and democratic socialist politics, I'd thought that we had reached a sort of higher levels of maturity than this. Uh, But here we are once again, doing what I sort of assessed that folks were doing quite egregiously in 2016. When I first started this project, we're mistaking um, principles for strategies. And as my good friend on Twitter uh, tweeted out in response, I believe, to Kalinski and others, you know, the, the worst mistake you can make in politics is to mistake principles for tactics. Um, tactics are not principles. Principles are not tactics. But when you mis- make that mistake, uh, you shut down the opportunity for um, open exchange between like-minded individuals, and it becomes a, more of a battle of kind of what identity you have and what kind of person you are. Are you the kind of person who supports this floor vote and thus you, you, you take Medicare for all seriously, or are you an opportunist, a weenie, or, uh, you know, what are the other, these epithets, uh, Kalinsky was, was tossing, um, towards the squad in his, and his tweets. Um, yeah. So let's get back to kind of, uh, the, this, the case and the stakes you've written quite a lot and, and a lot of different, you know, your, your, your blogs are, you write the way I think. <laughs> this is why I like your your blog style writing at the intelligencer it's uh it's it's kind of all over the place but in in a in a good way in a way that you know once you put it all together it really adds up to a, to a really nuanced kind of uh thing and so yeah wh- what is the wh- what is the position what is the argument here the 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 progressive left at least uh on paper has a tremendous amount of strength because we now comprise uh more votes potentially uh than the margin Of a majority carried by the Democrats right now, such that if the, those in the kind of hardcore left of the progressive caucus were to uh, force something on the table, Pelosi would have to accede because the Democrats don't have that much of a majority in in the house. They need the progressives to, to uh, carry the day against the Republicans who gained uh, many seats in the general election. So um, walk us through that situation as it stands today.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. So the, the Democrats house majority next year is uh, going to be, um, tiny there, there's still two races that I believe are not, they're so close. They're within single or double digit votes. Uh, last I looked at them, um, in, in Iowa and in New York, but, uh, regardless, it's, it's going to be small, uh, and even smaller because Biden, um, plucked some people out of the house, uh, Devaland, um, I believe a couple others, uh, that are, you know, in deep blue districts that are almost certainly going to be replaced by Democrats, but that's not going to happen on day one. So I think there's a chance, I got to look at the math again. I believe there's a chance that they're going to have like a two vote majority, like to start off or something. Um, so yeah, part of the idea is that, uh, the squad is not, you know, that large, but it is, it's more than two votes. Um, and so if Pelosi wants to retain the speakership, then, then you, uh, you can effectively um potentially deny it to her um uh and i think that there is been some you know horse trading going on between progressives that maybe the broader progressive uh you know house progressive caucus is 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 even is significant large um uh and pelosi um but yeah i i mean i i didn't really focus on this aspect of it that much in the piece but but you know it it follows that if, if the squad can hold uh, Pelosi speakership hostage, well, well, so can any group of problem solvers that doesn't want to take a vote on Medicare for All. And so I, I don't know. And then uh, if you do deny the speakership to Pelosi, there are um, people uh, who are ostensibly to her right, at the very least, who represent districts that are, are less liberal um, in terms of or the less safe uh, behind her that, that, that are also potentially um, or Certainly, uh, going to be younger, and, and one of the you know like Biden to an extent, if you're going to have a um a moderate establishment figure at the top at a time when when your faction is not particularly powerful yet, uh, but maybe is building power over time, you probably want an older person in that sort of uh, seat uh, rather than you know Hakeem Jeffries or or someone who is in a position to hold it for decades. So there's costs. Yeah I, I didn't really focus on this part but just the the fundamental logic uh, uh, of do we actually have the leverage to to force this if we decided that was what we wanted to prioritize above all else is is not totally clear to me
0: right and I'm uncomfortable gloss- you know I'm uncomfortable glossing over it entirely uh, even though you, as you rightly point you're you're tracing the argument as it has emerged from door to Kalinsky to someone we haven't even talked about yet that we will very soon. And I know some of the people are screaming in their smartphones wishing that we would, who's made a more rational case, I think, certainly a less histrionic case, uh, Brianna Joy Gray. Um, But those three people sort of gloss over this as well. And I think it's important that we don't. uh, We don't make any assumptions. We don't gloss over the process and the realities at all. And before we launch into the kind of tactical strategic considerations. And then the reality is that to my understanding there isn't even any conversation inside the party inside the even democratic caucus about you know there isn't a, an alternative to pelosi at this point in time nobody wants that position nobody in the progressives wants it or is ready for it aoc herself has said that i don't want it i'm not ready for it the realities of that position and uh, you know everybody knows that's a very serious and anybody who doesn't take the speakership seriously <laughs> Uh, as as disgusting and gross as it feels to do that, right? Um, just doesn't understand the way that congressional politics work, and and everybody knows, and nobody from the right is, can has the uh, the chutzpah to, to challenge him to challenge her either. And so the reality then, and this is and this isn't a reality that Dore at least Jimmy Dore has fully embraced. The reality would be that if Pelosi gives a, gives a big FU to the squad on this floor vote, that they would therefore withhold their votes entirely and Republican Kevin McCarthy would win the Speakership. And, it, it, you know, in a, this completely oddball situation, which has happened, if, if I'm not mistaken, hasn't happened since the uh, antebellum era. I'd have to call on our friend Matt Karp to verify that. But in a situation where a minority party uh, carries a Speakership, um, and they're willing to, quote, burn it down, as Jimmy Dore and his followers have said all over Twitter, if, if, if need be. Because if you don't risk burning it all down, then, you know, I don't know, dot, dot, dot. You won't get what you want. Um, as if politics was just a gunfight at the OK Corral. Um, it's just troubling. It's troubling. And so I, I do think we need to spell that out for people um, and talk about the realities and the leverage that you do or don't have. The reality is that uh, right now, Uh, the center and the right of the party um, has bigger guns and they know that they have bigger guns. They know that we know that they know that they have bigger guns and uh, they can call our bluff. This is how politics actually works. Uh, Uh, Irrespective of your Twitter following or your YouTube channel subscribership. Um,
1: Yeah. And I will say, I mean like, uh, you know, as the, the Menshevik in the, the room that just like, it also, I wasn't even actually aware of that, that aspect of it, but it did, uh, the, the, of doors proposal that, you know, who cares if we throw it to Republicans? Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, it's like, it's not actually the case that like, nothing is on the table or nothing. Is it like, I don't know. We, we just, obviously a lot of exceptional circumstances made this happen, but like the super dull happened. I mean, it happened because Democrats were in control of the house. Like I, I think if Republicans had full control of government, there would have been some level of income replacement, but there's there's no way that you would have had $600 a week um, for unemployed people that made a, a tremendous difference, um, both in the personal finances of Americans. I mean, the, between the cash payments and the UI, we saw the America's poverty rate hit its lowest level on record this year in the middle of mass unemployment in a pandemic, which is just in terms of substantive benefit is big, but also it seems to have... Had a, Even though the the benefits egregiously were allowed to phase out, it seems to have changed a little bit what American voters can imagine getting from their government or willing to expect from it, which I think we've seen in widespread calls for another round of checks that forced that into the the conversation, into the the legislation when congressional leadership initially did not want it. Um, and obviously Trump has now brought this to even greater attention. But anyway, it's like things are achievable. And like blue states where Democrats have full power are doing $15 minimum wages and doing things that like, you know, and, and in healthcare specifically, it's like, you know, the difference between a Democrat or Republican being governor of Louisiana and Kentucky is like more healthcare for uh, poor people, more public healthcare with very low out of pocket relative to, to private insurance. So there's just, it's not like the thing and, but, but there's, there's stuff to potentially win such that like the idea that there's no difference between having speaker Kevin McCarthy or speaker Nancy Pelosi, you know, it just, uh, I mean, I don't know. It's exasperating to me,
0: but it's exasperating. But I mean, that, that is, I mean, he's said it many times, the argument I want to go further to, to put as much meat on this bones as I can to, you know, again, Let's steel man our opponents uh, rather than straw man. You know The argument is there Therefore, Kevin McCarthy would be just as good as Pelosi over the next two years. Because uh, if we don't stand up to the Pelosi wing of the party, whatever that means, at this point, it's, it's just the Pelosi party. He <laughs> just single-handedly seems to be negotiating all of this stuff. It's a very strange yeah. situation to be in. But uh, if we don't stand up to Pelosi at this point, it seems inevitable that, that the Democrats are going to lose big in 2022 in a swing election and uh, we'll be out of power anyway. Um, and, and so it's, this kind of, um, it's a seemingly like that the problem with this is that on its face, it's sort of, it's, a, it's posing and maybe that's not a very charitable word to, to call your opponent's <laughs> posture a pose, but in my estimation, it's posing as this, like, um, like sort of, uh, steel minded, uh, steely, steely minded, uh, pragmatism of like, uh, you know, adequately dealing with one's fate. You know, e- you know, sleeping in the bed that's made for you. And well, you know, hey, what are you going to do? Uh, did, we're going to lose in twenty twenty two. We either do this or we're going to lose. So, sure, McCarthy as a speaker would suck, but we're going to lose anyway. And this is the way it is. And look, you you pick your, you choose your own adventure here, folks. You either get the floor vote, or you know, none of this matters anyway. So it's, it really does present itself as this, you know, um, nuanced, right. kind of a serious pragmatic assessment of, of what's really happening. And yet, as you allude to in, in other parts of your piece here, there's actually no reason to believe that, that that's the case. There's no reason to believe that the Democrats and even progressives uh, can't make very serious changes in the coming two to four plus years. Is that right?
1: Yeah. I mean, a couple of thoughts on that, uh, I mean, one a a decent amount is contingent on whether or not uh, Democrats are able to eke out this bare Senate majority um, by sweeping the Georgia runoffs. If that happens, uh, you know, pretty encouragingly, like this week after the nine hundred billion dollars stimulus passed Congress, Biden said, "You know, I consider this a down payment." You know, I I think there has been this real shift in the common sense of economic elites, uh, or rather, uh, elite economists about there is a sense of, you know, it was already eroding during the Trump era when Trump did his tax cuts and then did giant military increases, which also were accompanied by increases in domestic spending because he needed that in order to lift the caps. Um, Anyway, he did a giant fiscal stimulus at a time when a lot of center-left economists had declared us to be very near full employment, Um, you know, that if we throw any more, uh, much more demand into the economy, if we let the unemployment rate fall a little bit more, we're going to have like a inflationary spiral eventually. Um, this didn't happen. Then you had the COVID pandemic, which forced Congress to confront like just how much fiscal capacity the U.S. actually has. Um, granted, it's, it's strange circumstances, but uh, in terms of consumption being depressed by, you know, large sectors of the economy being taken offline. But, um, but nonetheless, this is all like affected a situation where Joe Biden, former deficit hawk is now like saying, you know, we've done, I believe, uh, we need to go go look again, but but we're we're like close to $3 trillion, I think, in terms of total fiscal stimulus between the CARES Act and this. And he's saying, you know, that's just a start, let's do more. Um, So anyway, there's there's stuff to do, at, at the very least, in terms of just putting more cash in people's pockets. Separate from that, the thing that, that about that 22, uh, midterm, you know, and I, I can sometimes lean towards fatalism in terms of projecting out certain demographic trends and democratic support. And, you know, this, this almost, um, almost like law of physics of the president's party, losing seats in midterms, but the specific kind of fatalism that expressed in that, that door opinion reflects what I sort of think of as the, this like just world theory of politics that, that, You see on on portions of the progressive left where a sort of identity of of interest is positive between what is like substantively good from our perspective and what is going to be politically or electorally beneficial. And that, you know, I think that there's there's something to the idea that the left program, if properly implemented, it's going to build up a working class constituency. It's going to, you know, that, that the neoliberal course was ruinous for the democratic party. I think there's like a lot of like really sort of valid premises that are then extrapolated really sloppily. And in ways where, you know, I find myself kind of feeling sort of refreshed by um, some of like the anarchist sort of ultra like non electoralists who I mostly disagree with about everything, but they're at least sort of clear eyed about the fact that like uh, we don't have a very responsive or democratic or functional electoral democracy. I think they're wrong about like, the, uh, importance of contesting for power within it nonetheless. But, you know, they're very clear about, you know, we live in a bourgeois democracy. We live in class society. And it just, it isn't the case that like, um, standing up for what's right, you know, that outside of the channels of campaign contributions or whatever, um, that the, that the, the capitalist class doesn't have cultural power and, uh, economic power that it can use to influence how voters see the world. And that actually it can make, you know, some of the things that we want to do potentially politically problematic, you know, not that we need to be totally fatalist about that, but, but just the the baseline premise that like, if we don't do, there's a, like such a tight correlation between, well, of course, if we don't do what progressives say that we should do, definitely, uh, we're going to lose elections um, is a, I, I don't think it's a very serious or a very materialist analysis of electoral politics.
0: And this is where you get sort of people throwing poll data polling data at you. And this is again where as you were speaking, it sort of made me rethink what I said in the opening here. you know in the opening I said, well, it's really disappointing that you know what I thought to be a, a, what I saw to be a fairly mature and maturing even uh, left. You know, during the primary process and over the past four years, has just sort of devolved into this uh, sort of moralistic mass on Twitter. Um, you know, and and maybe maybe there's more continuity there than I give him credit for, because where else did we see this kind of like uh, like this overinflated uh, hyper hyper quoting of polling data? Well, we saw it during the primary, right? Well, of course, you know, if only so-and-so did this thing, because it shows, the recent polling so shows that X amount, percentage of Americans agree with this policy, and so they should do this. And, you know, that's problematic in itself. You, among others, have, have pointed that out, perhaps oftentimes to my frustration, <laughs> because I, I want to believe, and, and I do, even still do believe, that the, the polling data and the public sentiment plays a large role in kind of potential electoral outcomes. But no, but there's I a key too, distinction right. here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you do as well. Right. I would say, I mean, I'm sort of a, another uh, journalist to have on fairly often who sort of chides me for that uh, is, is Dan Marens, you know, Huff, Huffington Post, yeah. you know, who says, oh, come on, Adam, you know, like it's not that simple, you know, just because 70 X percent of people, you know, whatever, uh, agree with Medicare for all. It's, you know, there's other barriers, other, other hurdles, other things. And he, he's not wrong. But I want to believe that in electoral pursuits, right, primaries or, or general elections, what have you, that th- that type of polling, that public sentiment is really, really important. It's alarming how often Democrats are willing to just completely disregard that yeah. uh, the, the public sentiment. They did so to their detriment this year because, of course, a lot of people who were more traditionally in our coalition ended up filling in that bubble for Trump because they just didn't feel heard or listened to or acknowledged. Uh, but there's a key distinction here, and that our, our Our audience, even if we overplay the polling in elections, which we probably do a little bit, guilty as charged, uh, there's a key distinction here because the American public is our audience in, in that context. In this context, it's the American state and Congress. And so when you're going up against the American state, when you're going up against Congress, who we know, as you just mentioned, taking some of the most critical insights from the more anarchist-minded folks on the left to understand, and I would just say, you know, good good, good old-fashioned Marxist, and you know, Marx himself was, at least in various phases of his life, quite the anarchist, um, and understanding that, yes, uh, the, it's, the bourgeois liberal state is actually not representative. They actually don't give a shit about us at all, and there's a lot of really complex mediations between the state and the will of the people. Um, but... the, the are you know the general population who who gets polled in these you know things? Categorically not our audience right now. It's Congress. It's Nancy Pelosi. It's the donor class. It's the strength of the American capitalist state with its uh, you know uh, groomed representatives. That seems to be a pretty critical distinction, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I think that it, this is circling around your point, maybe. But I, I think one of the the arguments that I kind of, uh, as you suggested, my, my editors are, are pretty indulgent and that I sort of slotted into here, which I had been meaning to, to make for a while is that the idea that, as I was sort of alluding to just now, that, you know, part of the constraint does come from, does come from the American public as, as mediated through elections, uh, and immediate. And so in other words, I, I think that as you were suggesting, like the U S state, first of all, we have a constitutional order that is, you know, severely anti-majoritarian and anti-democratic in terms of how many veto points you have in order to implement an agenda. We don't have a unicameral parliament where we can win, uh, you know, one big election, implement our program, and then if if people like it, uh, the right finds it impossible to repeal. I think, um, I believe Michael Knukin, um, uh, left-wing DSA thinker, I think he managed Julia Salazar's campaign. You know, made this point, I think, on on Facebook that, you know, when we have all these analyses of like, oh, what's, uh you know, why no socialism in America, you know, and there's lots of different like answers that are like part of it, I, I think, at least plausibly. But like, I think he's right that, like, institutions, as far as, you know, what happened in these other countries is you had post war, you had a, a labor social democratic party like actually take power, get to implement its agenda. And then once you get the NHS, it's like really hard to take that away from people. Once you get Medicare and Social Security, it's really hard to take it away from people. And if we had like, I don't know, uh, a, 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 I mean, I guess there still is a problem of like actually having like a truly social democratic party rather than whatever the New Deal Democratic Party was. Um, but but that said, like if you had a New Deal Democratic Party that wasn't relying on the South and that had was able to just govern by just winning the majority of votes, control the whole thing. Supreme Court is not an issue. Uh, you know, maybe we do actually get uh, we probably do get single-payer health care shortly after World War two And this is not like an issue. So the the state is an issue in terms of its institutional design and but then also separately from that I, I think that relevant to polling and voters is is just that this issue that um, The public opinion is malleable on most things uh, on most issues um the ordinary american uh you know it's really hard to figure out what uh, who's lying who's telling the truth um what the government is actually going to be able to competently uh, execute um you know and, and there's like genuine uncertainty of like okay you're saying that you're going to raise my taxes but my premiums are going to go low and my coverage is going to um maintain its current quality because i am one of the majority that does have employer provided insurance of some kind and maybe it's shitty it is shitty but at least i know like i know who to go to when i need you know uh my pharmaceuticals and whatever it's not firm enough that uh, opinion or at least at least in terms of like hypothetically i was speaking specifically about medicare for all there but across issues like a lot of issues opinions very malleable and if you have actors who have tens to hundreds of billions of dollars to spend trying to influence public opinion on the issues, um, because you are existing in a capitalist society with wild disparities in the distribution of wealth, um, this is going to bleed into the, the political system, even if it's not working through the channel of direct donations to democratic uh, office holders. Um, it, it can go through the channel of messaging to voters, and then from voters punishing uh, progressive office holders. And I think that this is relevant. This is like, I think, probably one of the more controversial points in my piece because it is. It, it has utility to centrists who want to uh, say that see here's why I can't you know uh, take on these these special interests you know uh, but I, I think it has utility as far as as far as strategic thinking as far as avoiding this like personalism and moralism about you know we have just Democrats why why are they opposing our priorities you know because they are corrupt um, because they are reactionaries and in, in some issues that absolutely is the case but. I think it is important if we are trying to figure out how do we influence these people, how do we get them to do what we want to do, I think that there needs to be some recognition that there is a decent amount of incentive um, for especially marginal members of Congress, ones in competitive districts, um, to try to figure out how to win re-election. They can get that wrong, certainly. Uh, It's it's a very hard thing to figure out. But there there are incentives to try to respond. um, And there is not like no, no reason for them to, to be concerned about, uh, endorsing, you know, a fracking ban if they represent an area of the country where, uh, that provides jobs, uh, you know, or Medicare for all, if they represent, uh, you know, a district with, uh, you know, large insurers in it or with, um, you know, just a very powerful, uh, hospital, uh, or doctor lobby or whatever, like, you know, th- these, things, and so I think part of the, the question of, of the knot that we're trying to untie in advancing our priorities is figuring out how to, um, how to make it so that, that, that potentially on the fence people are not going to be afraid to support, um, our priorities. And I think if we begin the analysis from the reason they don't support it is because they're basically evil, um, I, I think that that leads to sort of the, the kind of strategy that Dora is describing, which is kind of a, an expressive um you know gesture of rage that uh you know i guess you can tell a a kind of convoluted story about how that ultimately builds mass power but but i i, I just don't find it very plausible
0: yeah right you again this is why i bring you on the show uh you say expressive i say histrionic <laughs> uh <laughs> difference key differences with different uh you know uh yeah, resonances. But no, I, I, I wanted to let you go on. I was going to let you go is. on as long as you, you know, you, you, you could have gone on for 20 minutes. You didn't know that now you do, but yeah. maybe you, maybe you, you messed up. You could have had the mic for, for the next 45 minutes. I was gonna let you go as long as you wanted because, um, what you're essentially elaborating there is what I call here in these dusty networks over at DPS, uh, these dusty airwaves, uh, call that state theory. You're in essence, you're, I mean, that's what you're doing. You're, you're elaborating the kind of structural kind of the complex interaction between structures and agency, uh, and, and the kind of, uh, you know, the institutions that we have and the kind of way that the economic and political interfaces with one another under our constitution, under a liberal capitalist state. I mean, you know, we could go on in super hyper abstract sort of abstruse, whatever directions is all day. But, but in essence, like, you know, that's what has to ground all of our politics that's what has to ground all of our strategy and you know one thing i thought you know I, I didn't bring you on to talk about state theory you're a you're a serious journalist not a fucking you know dusty academic like me um but uh yeah not not a, not a blowhard academic like me but um you know it does matter in terms of like it, it makes me wonder like what is i didn't intend to ask you this question but you know, you've already kind of uh, speculated a, a certain kind of really actually very sophisticated state theory, something that I think comes out of like uh, like, um, like uh, the elite, elite theory of the state, you know, something like a C. Wright Mills uh, talked a lot about and other people in, in an even more sophisticated way. I think German Klaus Offa talked quite a lot about um, the kind of contradictions of um, d- democratic representation with the need to, you know, raise money and get elected and, and of course, keep the state solvent while you're taking on the capitalist class is like a very difficult thing to do. And it's contradictory. It's hard. It's hard folks. It's hard. It's not just about what's in your heart. Um, um, what, what is the kind of worldview, the kind of state theory that, that the Jimmy doors and even Brianna joy uh, uh, gray, what is the state theory that they're operating from? What are the, what are the grounding assumptions uh, that they're, that they're working from? Yeah. That's um, a tough question because I, I don't know the answer. I, I started to say like they don't have a state theory. But to me, it's like, you know, you can't – that's like not having an ideology. Everybody has an ideology. It's just right. you know, the, well, it's, the people's ideologies that are strongest are the ones who are pretty damn sure they don't have one. That just points to the fact that, no, yours is pretty Yours is pretty powerful, my friend. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, I mean like – you, uh, you know, and I, I occupied this, this space to an extent too, although I'm – yeah, uh, more confused about exactly where I stand in terms of like this, um, you know, materialist, idealist uh, sort of divide. But but there is, for the most part, like, for professional class uh, socialist media commentators, like, we occupy a very sort of contradictory, right, position in terms of, uh, uh, you know, obviously, like, you know, that there were sort of in, in one of whatever uh, the arguments like during the Bernie war debate, you know, I, I remember an exchange between, I think, Bhaskar Sankara and I think like Zed Jelani on Twitter or something, but, you know, about, um, you know, about the Bernie campaign is like representing the aspiration of like, who is going to lead the social democratic coalition. Um, is it going to be the working class or is it going to be the professional class? Um, and I, mm-hmm. I believe, you know, July pointed out, that you know, you look at who is running the Bernie campaign, it's, it's the professional class. Right. Um, but, uh, but so you have that, and then you. So so we're we're professionals arguing for working class power, um, and then we're also like we're we're media, we're we're, we're storytellers, we're idea mavens, um, arguing for materialism, um, and uh, <laughs> right. It's a trap. And so as Admiral Ackbar once gets said, "Kind you know, of complicated with, with with these figures, where there is like the Bernie ideology." Is very much about, it's like politics, it's about power, it's about organizing, it's about labor, it's about like, you know, objective, leveraging, objective power within the political economy. Um, but like, how do we do that? Um, well, we're, we're, we're all like, you know, talking heads. Um, and so it, it, it gets to this contradictory position where, it, it, and maybe I, I misread, but, but my reading of, of, uh, Brianna, uh, Joy Gray's, uh, article, um, making the case for forcing a floor vote what was the idea of it did reference like when it was trying to sort of gesture at a story for how this actually results in single payer was you know we need mm-hmm. social movements we need to leverage labor we need to um you know potentially leverage the threat of a general strike um but like how do we get from from here to like that level of organization and militancy it's like we we force a vote and leverage AOC's ability to um to really garner media attention and um, and use the spotlight in this moment of acute crisis uh in order to um and I think that is kind of you know i mean to be fair that that is part of the theory of the Bernie candidacy itself is like we're going to have this bullhorn at the very top of u s politics um and and this clarion call is going to abet um the building up of organization institutions, which I think is still like a, a pretty reasonable view i think you have had a build-up of left-wing or organization and institution building it's just it's it's small and slow um and i don't think that it's it's not the kind of thing where you're going to do that you know between now and mid-january you're going to have uh you know labor across the united states prepared to to engage in a uh illegal general strike to um to to win a healthcare policy that many unions oppose. Um, It's just like, it's just
0: not where we are. It's, I mean, so it it seems that you're, you're pointing to a really, and it's funny because, you know, had you, had you been making these arguments, you know, um, I don't know, pre COVID pre Bernie dropping out, like we might've had a fist fight on our hands, (laughs) (laughs) but, but in the wake of all that's happened, Right. It's undeniable that it's like even inside this Bernie coalition, there's been this fracture. And there's a, there's one group that sort of, again, because I, I still wholeheartedly believe in the, at least the abstract idea of Ber- what Bernie referred to when he talked about a political revolution. The idea that you've got to put your ideas out there. And then by the strength of putting the ideas out there and organizing, reaching new people and sort of engaging with people's um, creative, uh, you know, potentials and uh, working together and uh, we can open up new avenues of possibility throughout that, throughout through the course of, of that, uh, that striving. There's a hope there. There's a hope that when you put this out into the, into the ether, be they through the media channels to, you know, labor organizing, community organizing, what have you. There's a hope that something new and, and more capacious might materialize uh, but then there's there's a that's that's i I'm, i still absolutely in that camp yeah. okay you don't don't say adam oh adam's lost and i and i, and I, and I trust that you are too um, yeah. don't say adam sort of lost it he's uh you know become demoralized and now he's sold out to the establishment or what have you no i absolutely wholeheartedly still believe in that in the potentiality there but then there's another camp here and it seems like brianna's there seems like David's Road is there to some extent. Uh, and these are key players in the Bernie campaign, perhaps not senior players, but they're in the campaign, um, where they seem to, to, to go much further than feeling like you know there's a hope for potential there. And they seem to be certain that if you do this, then that will happen. And it's, it, that's, it's that certainty, which I have called perhaps uncharitably magical thinking, That I think really mars the side of of, of this side of that that particular debate. The certainty that because X amount of people are for Medicare for all, then dot 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 that will happen. Uh, Brianna's, you know, um, again this kind of tenuous, kind of contradictory location, uh, class or political, social location of the media presenter in america is you know her her solution on the katie halper show on one of the live streams was that well if you got enough rappers to talk about this and you got justin jackson of the la chargers to talk about this and uh, i don't know if maybe lebron james would tweet about it and you'd get some uh, some concerts and some big kind of uh, media attention then maybe we could really change things
1: I, mean, I think that would be but isn't
0: that just like you know the case of where if if you're a hammer everything looks like a nail If you're a media presenter, everything looks like some kind of media-backed PR stunt. I
1: mean, I I think that would be useful. Like, I think it would help. Like, if if LeBron James wants to become a democratic socialist, that would be great. (laughs) Uh, I mean, um,
0: I I guess my question is what's stopping us from doing that right now? What what, what would guarantee that it's it's that certainty, right? Then I think it's a difference there between the kind of dialectical potentiality to get nerdy here, dusty for a second, for the... For the old heads out there, uh, the dialectical potentiality, the uh, the emergent potentiality, I guess, you know, um, is real and it's true. But th- but that's different from a certain kind of like vulgar certainties. <laughs> Again, uncharitably, a vulgar certainty that if you do this, then that, and and because we're not doing that, we're missing out on the possibility of doing this. Um, I'm not sure where that comes from, but again, it could be a classic case of when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you're a media presenter, everything looks like the opportunity uh, of a lifetime if the right rapper would tweet about it. Yeah. Um, I
1: mean, I think there's, I don't know. Like I, I worried to, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, I actually, you know, had some, it, I, 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 I Brianna, I, I think um, you know, I thought that, that some of the, the critiques that she made of uh, you know, certain kind of neoliberal identity politics a, a few years ago were, were, were mostly sound or at least, you know, that they were sort of treated unfairly by some of the critics her critics, I think. Um you know, but uh and so I don't want to impugn like I I think she anybody oh, gives sure. motives. Sure. Um but I I do think that it is the case in terms of what you were saying about media presenter like and obviously, I'm implicated in this to an extent too, yeah, but but same. I think that a uh, <laughs> a problem for the left um, that is reflected in this, you know, is the fact that that its institutional strength right now is so uh, weighted towards media. Uh, well, two problems. One one the the to the extent where has the left really built up institutional strength and cultural influence in the United States over the past five years? I would say like it's really like new media social media um you know really through social media and the um the you know the savviness and the wit uh and sort of absurd sense of humor and just kind of innate understanding of how internet culture works uh that so many uh disaffected millennials uh have um that combined with like platforms like twitter which like puts people who are really good at the internet like just like in the faces of Every um, editor segment producer like mainstream media person like in the country um, you know I think that that that's sort of a large part of, of, of what um, of where the left has built strength, but that level of an increase in, in institutional strength in media has not been matched by by an inst- growth of institutional strength in community based institutions I don't think uh you know dsa has has had very um significant growth but it's not you know the, the trade union movement has continued to decline uh and you know what whatever was left of the radical church the radical black church um I, I don't think has has seen significant growth uh you know or movement towards um you know the the socialist left uh and you know there's a distinction between like, like the incentives the immediate like day to day incentives uh facing someone in media and, and media institutions is like very different than institutions that are, you know, membership based, uh, and have a constituency that like really, you know, has really strong incentives to figure out exactly what the, the immediate term, um, effect of any tactic is going to be, uh, that can have a potentially, you know, um, moderating and, and defanging effect. You know, we see that with like, you know, sort of conservative labor unions that are really, f- Narrowly focused on you know protecting uh, a sort of myopic understanding of their members' interests, um, but there is nonetheless this tether to like a really strong like incentive of like reality figuring out what what is or is not going to be the likely cost or or benefit of a given action, what actually is on the table here, um, you know maybe something actually that that's really beneficial um, and that potentially will uh, abet the further building of power in the future, but is not really sexy and doesn't make for a great story um, you know that stuff is going to get on the radar radar of a, a membership based um you know uh or or not even but but a but a institution with a real constituency that that is really accountable to that is not a um that is not a subscriber based that is not uh a constituency that's engaging primarily for the consumption of narrative and content um you know media it has a different sort of incentive we are more attracted towards uh you know these these things that are a little bit spectacular or a little bit like just already sort of high salience and like have like a clear sort of narrative built around them um, and that we can sort of plug into and that gets people excited and energized. Um, And uh, if we're working, you know, depends on there's, there's biases in every sort of uh, in, in every form of media institution. So for me, like I have to focus, like, I don't know. I mean, as I said, towards the beginning, part of why I wrote this story about this subject, uh, there were, intellectual uh ethical political concerns um but also this was trending um you know and, and i'm pushed like in that direction <laughs> okay. um yeah. and subscriber based patreon stuff like gets rid of some of the biases that you get working at a corporate media outlet or one that's really hyper focused on maximizing eyeballs to sell ads but then you have to keep your subscribers engaged you have to you know um and, and you know, you have a pretty strong incentive not to significantly change your mind in light of new evidence about like a, a really fundamental part of your ideology. If you've attracted and built this subscriber paying audience that came to you uh, by sharing your ideology, you know, the, whatever, I, there's just the, the incentive issues with media that make it, you know, it, it's a, it's important for the left to have a strong presence in media. Media is incredibly important, especially, you know, in our current context, our political culture is so heavily mediated. Um, but like, there are some, I think, uh, you know, pathologies that result from having a lot of strength in, in media uh, relative to your strength in other parts of civil society.
0: Right. I mean, again, and you know, I'll, I'll be <laughs> I have to try to summarize what you said in a slightly uh, more bombastic and uncharitable way. But I would say that you know what we have discovered in the in the in the post-Bernie wave of the Democratic Socialist movement, anyway, and uh, in in with COVID. Is that it just utterly collapsed? I mean, I that I think you know anyone who 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 has the politics would even be remotely sympathetic to what you know our, our listenership today here our, what this show is all about and you and I and what we believe in and what we want in the world would have to say we've just been utterly demoralized at times through since March with uh, by the speed at, at which all of this promise that we had built up over the preceding years at the speed of which all of that just collapsed it just utterly receded into the background. It just was, a, it was like a non, it was just a non event. And and, and you'd like have that, to believe that
1: there was that two week. Sorry, go ahead. there's like that two or three week period from like where, um, my friends, like, who are like democratic consultants were telling me, uh, after, um, Nevada, like, you know, showed me the spreadsheets, like Bernie's going to be the nominee. This is happening. Like it's, uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily our choice, but it's over. We got to start preparing. It for was unstoppable. It. Um, and yeah, like within like three weeks, like, yeah, Bernie's dead and uh, politically and we've got uh, a fucking pandemic. Yeah, uh, it, yeah. Was, it, was, pandemic. it was a global pandemic. And
0: I thought I, when you said for about two weeks there, I thought you were going to point to another two week period uh, where. Uh, It it seemed like at the at the you know I I'm sure I went on record saying this on my podcast. You guys can find this in March and maybe even April as late as April. Me saying that hey this this moment holds a tremendous amount of promise for the left because uh, the state is going to be forced to act in uh, really universalist and uh, social democratic ways like perhaps unseen since you know World War II and it's going to have to act as a wartime government. Um, and instead, they've just uh, proven just how barbaric they can be uh, and how little they care at all <laughs> about people dying and starving and uh, offing themselves and in and, and, and droves, whether it be suicide overtly or, uh, you know, um, drugs. It's just been horrific and they just don't care. And so, you know, for two weeks, I thought to myself, my God, we're going to see a new deal ushered in by the, the Trump administration. Yeah. <laughs> But that was not to be. Uh, that was not to be. Yeah. Um, and um, and so, yeah. The the speed at which this all receded forces one to acknowledge that this is all very much kind of a paper tiger that we've built. That's what I was getting at. It's a paper tiger in a lot of ways, and Pelosi knows it, and uh, the centrists in Congress know it. They fear it in the sense that they have to be held accountable to it uh, by the media and by their some of their kind of uh, constituents. You know, again, Spanberger being you know appalled that she has to um somehow answer for medicare for all or defunding the police um you know the the case case after case of, of where that was actually harmful to people even perhaps um but uh but yeah that's yeah. that's what we're living through right now um we do have to wrap up what's the let's let's play this game what's the strongest argument that these folks make what's something that we can hold on to that they're that they're pushing for in this floor vote tactic um
1: i think that uh I'm not sure. I mean I think in terms of like a a relatively minor point in in Gray's article which I think is is totally correct was about whether this would even like register media attention wise um you know uh given the threshold for what counts as newsworthy that Donald Trump's established for us um but you know she pointed out I mean I do think that uh, AOC and the squad like are very good at generating media attention um you know both because of uh AOC has an enormous millennial urban millennial, uh, following, um, you know, that is, is both large and also like that is like a demographic, uh, cohort that consumer facing brands really want to sell to. So it's just, it's an attractive, you know, whatever stories centering on AOC are attractive to the corporate media, um, just in terms of, uh, generating attention. Um, and, and, you know, especially like, you know, cable news, they're, they, pretty good at getting old people to tune in their concern is getting young people. So there's that. And then there's the right wing media just loves to amplify anything that makes the democratic party seem radical. Um, So I think that absolutely the floor vote would garner a tremendous amount of um, at least if it came in the right uh, circumstance, uh, media attention. Um, And, you know, it's, it's hard. I don't think any of us can say confidently or you just, I, I I, think it's plausible that that could in, increase uh, public support for Medicare for all if you had, um, if you were able to really execute this media spectacle correctly uh, and in the context of, you know, whatever, I don't know if this would be happening in January or, or when, but like in the middle of the COVID winter, uh, you know, with God knows how many dead by that point um, and, and how many unemployed and having you know, engineering the the, the spectacle where you see these uh, young lawmakers standing up for principles that, you know, abstracted in and of themselves are absolutely overwhelmingly popular. The idea that healthcare should be a right, the idea that you shouldn't, you know, die uh, from a preventable illness because you're poor, like, these are things that, like, uh, an overwhelming majority of the American public believes in these normatively. Um, And so, you know, uh, associating the left with that ethical principle in this moment, you know, maybe that does build some public opinion goodwill. I can make a lot of arguments for why this wouldn't turn out that way. But um, but in terms of, yeah, I, I, I like I say in the piece, I think that that's the plausible argument here is that, that we, we could uh, engineer a potentially politically beneficial uh, media spectacle. So yeah, I guess that's what I would say.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I can say. I mean, again, I asked the question. You're free to answer how you'd like, but I can also see how people who've been disagreeing with us the entirety of the of the uh, the past hour would say, "Well, you just fu- you just fucking agreed with the people that you've been disagreeing with the entire time." Great argument, Eric. Let's have a floor vote, right? Yeah, <laughs> which is what we've been arguing against the entire time. Of course, we'd have to lay out, you know, the the uh, the, the, p- the potential pitfalls and the downsides. Right. And again, I think like. The, what, the my biggest issue here is yes okay absolutely Pelosi's a monster I mean she she has just complete almost single handedly held back so much that this party could have achieved and, and will could could achieve in the next two years no question uh, there are elements in this Democratic Party that are just monstrous however um, it is the party that we have and there seems to be this idea that somehow you win friends and influence people um, by threatening them in public. (laughs) And and no matter how much we don't like the apparatus that is the democratic party and the games that they have to play, they, those are the rules that are structured, uh, for the players of the game. It's no different than the, the kind of complex social and professional, uh, mazes in which we find ourselves that we have to engage in and play, play with, It's funny, the people who, you know, I mean, okay, this might seem cheap, but there's some really great, like, you know, I don't know, memes and TikToks and Instagrams that were going around about people who were saying, oh, the government can't tell me what to do. Fuck you. I ain't wearing a mask. And then they get in their car and put on their seatbelt, you know, dutifully. (laughs) It's like, but I mean, the same could be said about these people who are are denigrating AOC for like playing by the rules or whatever and not burning it all down and shit-talking Pelosi and the leadership in public, you know, Um, and yet they you know, go about their lives, be their personal lives, professional lives, like whatever have you in their political organizations, perhaps even. And they are very much game players and recognize that like they don't get to make the rules. They do have to play by the rules. And you might want to sort of bend the rules. You might want to change the rules, but you don't do that by just, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, flinging the uh, metaphorical game board with all the pieces on top of it across the room and, and storming out of the room. Um, that's the part that, that troubles me is that there isn't an awareness of, of the game. And we had better get very serious about playing that game and winning the game, um, rather than, you know, taking our ball and going home. I don't know any parting words uh, for the folks about, um, you know, any, any barricade speeches. I know that's not your style, uh, but (laughs) speak now or forever. Hold your peace. Um, yeah, no, I
1: think that you just offered a pretty good, uh, good summation. Um,
0: and by forever hold your peace, I mean, we'll have to wait uh, probably, what, approximately two hours until your next uh, blog comes out because you write faster than most of us can read.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully, I, I've got uh, got a couple days off here with uh, the Goyam holidays. So, um,
0: <laughs> Well, you're welcome for this. Yeah, those. no, uh, I appreciate it. I know you're it. oppressed. You're oppressed uh, with you by in, in in many ways, but that that's a gift. Yeah, no, uh, you're I mean I, we will eventually win the war on Christmas.
1: Um, Soros <laughs> has an excellent battle plan, but
0: I don't doubt it. You guys play the long game, not like us. You know, we uh we burn we burn it all down. Uh, but yeah. anyway, I appreciate you coming on the show. You know, I mean, again, you know, again, you know, I think rational minds can disagree on this point, it, but but I do want to be sure that you know at the end of this what we're, we're both insistent on is that this is a tactical strategic question, not a moralistic one, not a, not a, not even a principled one. And uh, I, I do, I, I think both of us would deeply and desperately like to see the debate take place on those grounds. And and again, this might be a, a sort of a, a muck up that will disappear and we'll laugh at about it three years. Remember that thing we did about the door thing? Yeah, that was wild. You know, how many left dust ups can we sort of uh, talk about and joke, joke off uh, about, in, you know, Laugh off about in those ways, many, many, many. Okay, there's a new one every two weeks, but but the structure of what's what's unfolding in the course of this very, uh, you know, time, uh, you know, what's what's the word? Uh, very disposable, uh, dis- talking points. The structure of these talking points will will haunt us for the coming years. So I think it's important for us to wrap our heads around. So thanks so much, Eric Levitt, staff writer with a New York magazine. I'll link to his work on this and you guys should really uh, follow that man. He's a, he's an important read. Thanks again, Eric.
1: Yep. Thank you.